we have talked a lot in this retreat about many different things. And tonight I'd like to talk about one of the discoveries of the Buddha, which ties together most of what we've been talking about. There are two doctrines of the Buddha's teaching, two discoveries of the Buddha's understanding, which are only found in the Buddha's teaching and not in any other religions or spiritual traditions. And the first of those is the teaching on anatta, that there is no eternal being or ego or person to which all of this is happening. And this practice is in large part an attempt to see through the veil of that delusion by paying very close attention to our actual experience of the mind and the body and anything else we can discover and seeing that there really isn't any eternal thing in here. The second teaching of the Buddha, exclusive to the Buddha's understanding of the mind and the liberation of mind, is embodied in the teaching of dependent origination. And it might initially look like, oh my goodness, this is pretty complex, and what's this all about? But I want to present it briefly tonight so that you can begin to see the profundity and the simplicity of the Buddha's discovery and how this practice that we do here in its simplicity actually reveals the truth of this teaching. Buddha talked about the wheel of existence being samsara, the endless cycling of birth, life, death, reconnecting to another existence, another birth, another life, another death, endlessly rolling on eternally. And the way it happens in the macro view is that we act. And in so acting, in so performing karma, we plant the seeds for future results. Those results spring in this lifetime or in another uh, future existence. And due to our not seeing clearly the nature of experience then, due to ignorance, 
we again act karmically. Those karmic actions planting the seeds that bear fruit in yet again another future existence. On and on and on. Without cease. Eternally. The Bodhisattva came into the world, saw the human condition, growing old, living with a body that gets sick, in pain, diseased, and eventually dies, along with all of the other sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair, difficulties of living as a human being. And his mind was stimulated to discover a way to escape from that dukkha, from that condition. And he was led to do several lifetimes and then in his last lifetime, several years of practice. This teaching is the understanding that he came to after his practice or at the height of his awakening. He saw this truth. The Buddha started with the observable fact of our old age, disease, and death. And he said, or he inquired, what is the causal condition for old age, disease, and death? And he discovered that it was being born. And I'm following the links backward now, starting at 12, The causal condition of 12 is number 11, birth. Then he said, okay, what is the causal condition for birth? And he found that it was actions taken with a view to become something in the future. Okay, what is the causal condition of taking those actions. He discovered it was grasping. Grasping for that experience. What is the cause of that grasping? Is craving. Seeing it, heading towards it, wanting it, finally getting it. Craving, preceding, grasping. And he said, okay, what is the causal condition for craving? And he looked in his own experience and he discovered that it was the pleasant and unpleasant feelings that we have. Pleasant, causing us to crave more of it. Unpleasant, causing us to crave its non-existence or its opposite. So he said, okay, feelings. 
what is the causal condition of feelings, these pleasant and unpleasant feelings. And he discovered that it was contact between the senses, the sense sensitivities, and sense objects. Okay, what is the causal condition for the contact of sense object, sense base, and sense consciousness? And he discovered that it was having senses, having senses, sense sensitivity. So he said, okay, what's the cause of having these senses? And he discovered that it was the body and mind. What is the causal condition of having a body and mind? He discovered it was consciousness. Relinking or rebirth consciousness. So he said, okay, well, what's the causal condition of that? He discovered it was actions taken, karmic actions taken in the past, giving rise to current consciousness. And then he said, okay, this is getting close to enough. But what, just suppose, what is the causal condition for these karmic actions? And he discovered that it was ignorance, not understanding the true nature of things. And then being a real curious fellow, he said, okay, well, what's the cause of ignorance? And he realized that it was a tendency that had existed forever. The Buddha said, inconceivable is the beginning of this wandering on in birth and death. Not to be discovered is a first beginning of beings who, obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, are hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirth. Inconceivable is the beginning. So ignorance is the source point for this whole round of endless existence. Now in this teaching of the dependent origination, there are four aspects that I want to point out to you so that you can notice. And the first is that in this cycle of birth and death, that the process through these 12 links is a single stream of consciousness, endlessly rolling on. Secondly, each link in this 12 links has a cause-effect relationship, so that number one is the cause for the arising of number two, its effect. Number two is the cause for the arising of the number three effect. And thirdly, this process happens automatically without there being any agent or any person making it happen. It's the law of cause and effect. 
just like when you throw a ball into the air, here on earth, gravity brings it down. That's cause and effect. The circling of these links happens lawfully, cause and effect, without there being anyone making it so. And fourthly, each link is sufficient and necessary for producing its effect. Now I want to talk, I want to go through this the other way around in a little more detail. Ignorance. The source of ignorance in our lives currently, in the past, the infinite past, is its continuance. It's the tendency towards not knowing. Ignorance is not seeing things as they are. Being deluded, being blind to the reality of existence due to lack of mindfulness, lack of attentive observation, so that we see things as being permanent. We see things as being satisfactory. We see there being a being here to which this is all happening. This is ignorance. What is it we are ignorant of? The Buddha said that we are ignorant of the Four Noble Truths in our direct experience. So that not seeing the First Noble Truth, the, the, noble, the, the truth of Dukkha, Dukkha Satcha, or the truth of Dukkha. By not seeing that, we believe that we can find the means, the people, the material goods, the knowledge, or whatever, to be satisfied, that will last forever to this person that we always will be. But we as yogis here practicing have begun to understand the truth of the First Noble Truth by discovering and validating the Buddha's teaching that indeed everything is impermanent. And indeed, what mental or physical experience has provided you or has offered you in this time satisfaction, complete, total fulfillment and satisfaction. We've begun to see through. We've begun to see and validate the first noble truth of dukkha. We also don't see the second noble truth, which is that the cause of dukkha is craving. In fact, we often believe just the opposite. If I get what I want, I'll be happy. That goes without saying. That's the way we live our life. If I can just get what I want, I'll be happy. No. 
here we see, as yogis, we practice, we discover, even if I get what I want, a good sitting, painless sitting, our favorite meal. Are we happy? The noble truth, the second noble truth, shines true again. The third noble truth is that there is a cessation of this dukkha. Some of us may have begun to discover that, in fact, when we pay very close attention to our experience, that though there may be unpleasantness, we can sometimes be with it without suffering. We've all had that experience. It's okay. Even with great discomfort in the body, it's okay. The mind is at ease. The mind is at rest. The mind is peaceful. We see that. We not only, we don't just believe it, we experience it as the truth of the third noble truth. This is a temporary experience. And fourthly, ignorance of not knowing the fourth noble truth, which is that the path to this cessation of dukkha is the noble eightfold path, the practice of morality, concentration, and wisdom all of which we're doing here. Keeping the precepts, practicing concentration with, in tranquility, being in this environment, working with primary objects, and the development of insight or wisdom by noticing the arising and passing away of all mental and physical phenomena. As yogis, we come to see, we come to validate the truth of the fourth noble truth, that if we practice sila, samadhi, and panya, if we practice ethical behavior, concentration, and insight, indeed we get to some degree of the cessation or temporary putting aside of dukkha. This first link, the source of this endless rounds of birth and death, ignorance, are what are called, or is one of which is called kalesa. Others here have talked about the kalesas being the defilements, the hindrances, the obstructions of mind. And this circling this uprising and swelling of kilesa causes us, ignorance causes us to act in pursuit of our ignorance. The second link is karmic formations, basically actions, karmic actions. Whatever actions we take with intention, 
in the pursuit of pleasure or pain avoidance, our karmic actions. The primary element of karmic actions is our intention. We consistently, hopefully, instruct you, notice your intentions. It's vital to awakening to understanding the profundity of the Buddha's recognition of how things are. Noticing your intentions to avoid pain and to seek pleasure. By speaking, by acting, by moving, by looking, by tasting, by touching. Karmic actions taken or based on our intentions, our motivation, our intentions, produces results in the future. A future moment, a future existence, somewhere in the future when conditions are ripe. And between link two and link three, we come from the past into the present. So we can say that the results now that we are experiencing are the result of past actions. And what is it that we're experiencing in the present? We're experiencing links number three through seven. These are the present effects of past actions. Now, the link between two and three is very important because it's that link from a past life to a present existence or a past existence to a present existence which is the source for all kinds of questions like if there isn't anyone, who's doing it? And if I wasn't then, how can I be now? So I want to explore that link a little bit so that we can get a correct understanding of what the Buddha said was happening at the moment of death, conditioning a future or a continuing existence. And we see this in our practice. This is, doesn't have to be taken as dogma. Please look to your own experience to discover by analogy, what the Buddha was pointing to. As we sit and pay attention to our process, our mind and body, there is a continual uprising in the mind of ideas, thoughts, plans, images, etc. The Buddha discovered that at the moment of death, the mind gets really heightened sensitivity. And one of those images, a past image, future image, or whatever, comes into the mind extremely lucidly, extremely clearly, and we grab onto it. And it may be an image of something we have done in the past, 
It may be an image of some object or some thing associated with that action. It may be an image of some plan or some future endeavor. But one of those three comes into the mind clearly uh, and with a force that we can't let go of it in the mind. And that image arises at the moment of death. And just like here in practice, when we see a memory giving rise to the emotion of that memory, giving rise to the plan to do something about it, etc., that image at the moment of death conditions the next moment, relinking consciousness of another existence. We do the same thing here, moment after moment. When we discover a plan, ah, we find ourselves planning. What comes next? How to scheme to make that plan happen? That plan conditioning the next moment, here. The Buddha discovered that it doesn't have to stay in this body. The mind can go anywhere quickly. One moment here, next moment there, this moment conditioning the next. What gets passed from one existence to the next? Not the body, not the mind. Nothing from that mind goes there except the conditioning influence of what we grasp last, conditioning what we grasp first in the next existence. No person passed from one to the next. No body passed from one to the next. No soul, no ego, no personality. Ignorance and wisdom get passed. Through conditioning from one moment to the next. When we begin to see this in our own practice, we begin to see that indeed, or we maybe get just, just get a hint that there really isn't someone remembering, planning, commenting, judging, scheming. But it's a conditioned process that just rolls on endlessly when we don't see clearly. The relinking consciousness, the rebirth consciousness, is link number three, where we take up a new existence along with a body. As humans, the fertilized egg or whatever, and other realms of spontaneous uh, emergence as a, a fully mature being. But in any event, we take up a new body and continue on in the stream of consciousness. Every moment of consciousness you may have discovered 
has associated with it or reflected, it is reflected in some physical experience, the body, as we experience it. Link number four is nama rupa, mentality, materiality, conditioned by consciousness. Because of consciousness, we experience the body and the mind. In this case, the mind being those mental factors arising with that particular consciousness, whatever it is. Anger and aversion or greed and confusion, delusion, restlessness, if the consciousness is unwholesome. Mindfulness, faith, wisdom, tranquility, love, compassion, if the consciousness is wholesome. The physical experiences of heat, cold, discomfort, etc., or pleasantness, softness, tranquility, the mind and the body, conditioned by consciousness. Because we have a body, inherent in the body is some number of senses. In our case as human beings, the Buddha identified six, the five that we know, and the mind as the sixth, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. And a way to understand the mind as a sense object is we have eye and sight and and visible objects. We have ears and audible objects. We have the body and tangible objects, the tongue and taste objects or flavors, the nose and odors, the mind and thoughts. Easy to see that the mind is a sense organ quite like the others. With this body, as we grow, the senses come into maturity. The potential is there in the relinking consciousness. And the first speck of materiality, the potential is there to produce these senses. And the Buddha said, because of sensitivity, sense sensitivity, when that sense base comes in contact with a sense object, sense consciousness will arise. The contact of these three things, the sense base, the sense object, and the sense consciousness, is link number six, contact. One way to get an understanding of contact is someone reported to me today, I, I, I don't remember just what the situation was, but something to the effect of sitting quietly, hearing a loud noise, 
or hearing a noise, and the whole body being moved by it. And we probably all had that experience. Being jolted, and the whole body just vibrates. The contact of that sound with the ear base, the contact was, was almost tangible and could be felt in the body. And when our mind gets really sensitive, when our attention gets really refined and our mindfulness gets really precise, we can eat something as simple as a banana or an apple or a rice cake or whatever it is, something that we eat often. And the taste pierces in a, through our, into our mind in a way that we're just unfamiliar with. Because the contact is so heightened. So we become so aware of the contact of our senses with sense objects. And then we can see quite clearly that that contact of that sense object with that sense base produces a feeling, a strong, often very strong feeling, tone, pleasant or unpleasant, physical or mental. Pleasant in taste, pleasant sunsets, pleasant sounds occasionally, pleasant mind or or the uh, pleasant experiences in the mind when we feel joy, when we feel happy, when we feel okay, when we feel confident, when we feel tranquil, or unpleasant sights. You know, seeing the person that you have a vendetta with, the contact producing, seeing that person that you had a run-in with, just seeing them brings this unpleasant feeling to the body, this unpleasant feeling to the mind. We've all had that experience here, probably a lot. That's the feeling tone. Link number seven. And what did we do when we had that pleasant or unpleasant feeling? We said, hmm, I wonder how I can get more of those cookies that we had for lunch. Or I wonder how I can get rid of that person in the next room who's bothering me. Or something. We start clinging to pleasant sensations. We start clinging to or averse to unpleasant sensations. Somehow we want to make the pleasant permanent and we want to make the unpleasant impermanent or non-existent if we can. And so these feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness condition our clinging, our craving for more or less. We don't have to do it. The feeling itself will do it if we don't pay attention, if we just let it roll on. And we, all of us have seen this 
innumerable times in our experience here in these three months, two and a half months. We've seen over and over again how pleasantness, you can have a good sitting. You finally get here and you have a good sitting and you just want it to continue. You imagine it's going to continue for the rest of the day. It's just going to be this way forever. Well, at least till lunch. Or we have an unpleasant sitting and we still think it's going to last forever. And we'll do anything we can to get rid of it. We see these things. The, 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 the Buddha, he didn't make this up. <laughs> he didn't say, hey, this sounds like a good idea. He looked at his own experience and put it in words. And this is what he saw. We validate it every step of the way. Or we verify it every step of the way. So now we're craving. We're caught up in link number eight, just going around endlessly. Link number eight. And when we finally get, we've, we've, been, we've been craving for something, and it finally gets within our grasp, we hang on for dear life. You know, you, um, to use the analogy of sitting again. You struggle and you struggle for two weeks. You finally have a good sitting, and you want it to last. If I can just make this last for the end of the hour. We've grasped the idea of having a pleasant sitting, of having a pain-free body. We've grasped the sensation, the pleasant sensations of watching the sunset, watching the moon rise, or watching the eclipse the other night. You all were probably up at one o'clock watching the eclipse, weren't you? <laughs> it only happened once, like all other experience. You got to be there for it. In this grasping, clinging, this grasping, this reaching for, this wanting to hold on to our ideas, our pleasant experience, we do what we can in furtherance of it. We do what we can to become more of the pleasant or to become less of the unpleasant. Link number 10. Taking those actions, again, in pursuit of pleasantness and avoidance of pain. Which, in their due course, plant the seeds of future effects which will ripen again in birth and everything that follows from birth. Can you get a sense of what the Buddha was pointing to? This wheel is spinning. It's just going around and around and around. And you can't let go. And you can't hold on. And it's just going around. And around. And it's not you doing it. It's law of cause and effect. Just don't pay attention and it'll go on forever. But the Buddha said, wait a minute. I'm not interested in rolling around like this forever. Thank you. I think I've had enough.
catch up with my notes. So let me just review again. Link number one. Ignorance is a defilement of mind leading us to perform karmic actions, link number two, producing future effects, links three through seven. They are the result of karma. When those results give rise, again, due to ignorance, we will cling, crave, perform actions in pursuit based on that ignorance, based on that clinging, craving, those kalesas, producing or causing karmic actions again, again producing results or effects in some indefinite future when the conditions are right. Kalesas, conditioning karma, conditioning effects, conditioning kalesas, conditioning karma, conditioning effects. Regarding karma, regarding the actions we perform, producing or conditioning the moment of death that conditions the first moment or consciousness of a succeeding existence. The Buddha talked about the power of karma. And he said that at that moment, one of four karmas will appear in the mind. And the first is what is called the weighty karma. If you have performed some heavy-duty karma, that will be so powerful in the mind, the intention behind that, and that action itself will be so powerful that it will necessarily come to the forefront of your mind to condition next or succeeding existence. And weighty karmas can be either wholesome or unwholesome. Of course, harming the Buddha or a fully enlightened being or killing one's parents, weighty karma on the negative side, bound to come to the mind at the moment of death. On the other hand, weighty positive karma is if one has practiced meditation and attained jhana, and can still attain jhana at the moment of death, still has that ability, then that will as the Buddha said, necessarily come to mind, conditioning next rebirth.
consciousness. Or, if one hasn't performed any weighty karma, haven't killed your parents and haven't perfected jhana, then something that one has done habitually throughout one's life may come to the foreground. And it's this karma that we most cultivate here by bringing a strong intention to our meditation practice and to taking refuges, maybe possibly bowing or paying respects to the Buddha or whatever. Bringing a, a, as strong and as determined of intention as we can habitually over and over again really conditions that consciousness to arise in the mind. And it is more likely that it will arise in the mind at the moment of death if it has been heavily conditioned during life. And when I was in Burma practicing, there was a monk who used to come by the monastery I stayed at. And he was sick, but he had his own monastery and he would come by to Rangoon for medical treatment occasionally. And I met him the last time he was there and just talked with him briefly. And a week or so later, I heard that he had died. And he died while he was giving a Dharma talk. You know, he was sitting here talking. (laughs) Something that he had done for years, probably being the last moment of his consciousness, conditioning his rebirth consciousness. If we haven't done anything habitually, conscious with a lot of intention, then the last act of this life may be what comes to the foreground. And not only the Sayadar who was giving a talk, but when I was at the meditation center in Rangoon, there was one woman one day who was just sitting in the meditation hall and died. And her family was so happy that she had died while meditating, believing that that karma was possibly the best for conditioning her next existence. It wasn't because of practice that she died. (laughs) It was natural, but it just happened to be there. If there's no weighty karmas and there's no habitual karma, or if the last act doesn't come to mind, then anything we have done at any time in our inconceivable past can come to mind and be the conditioning action, the conditioning karma for future, for our next uh, existence. So you can begin to see how important it is to really arouse determination and energy for what we do in life so that the intention is uh, strong and more likely to arise in the mind. Bad habits, we don't usually put a lot of intention into it. 
They just kind of go on with, you know, without much intention, just habit. But when we develop strong intention to practice, to pay respects to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, or to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, or to be generous, or to develop metta or karuna, then that intention, the power of that intention, the energy of that intention, uh, enhances that karmic action, or the, the significance of that karmic action in our mind. Very important that you, that you practice with a clear determination and motivation. The Buddha, thankfully, did not leave us hanging here, endlessly cycling around in this law of cause and effect. The clarity of his mind, or with the clarity of his mind, he looked at this circle of conditioned existence. And he said, where, where do I apply my energy to stop this process? Where, what is the weak link in this whole automatic thing? Because we've gone through and we've seen that it's cause and effect in every place. And it doesn't take an agent to make it happen. It just rolls on. And he looked and he discovered that between link seven and link eight, between the feeling and the craving was the possibility of breaking the circle. If we could put aside ignorance of that feeling. If we could wake up, or if he could apply his energy or his understanding to make that feeling conscious, then it would not condition craving. And he found that if he just paid attention to the feeling of his experience in the mind, in the body, moment after moment, then craving would not arise. And because there was no um, present effect, the present effect of the feeling, was not giving rise to present commas, then there would be no future result. There would be no future dukkha. Birth, death, old age, suffering, lamentation, grief, despair, hopelessness. If we could just pay attention consistently, we would break the chain of samsaric existence, at this point. And it's what we do here. Every time we note, every time we are aware of our experience, 
we may or we may not notice the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant, but in any event, we're not unconsciously and conditioned to move on to craving. If we just see and let go, see and let go, see and let go, notice pleasantness, unpleasantness, pleasantness, unpleasantness, craving does not arise. Actions do not rise in pursuit of those cravings. Results do not happen due to actions. We temporarily break the cycle of samsaric existence and experience of dukkha. Each note, each time we notice our experience consciously, putting aside ignorance, we weaken that link. And at some point, we break it. And there'll be no further experience of dukkha. That's a law. The Buddha didn't make it up. The Buddha discovered it. That's the way things are. It sounds like a lot. It looks like a lot. But if you really... I was going to say think about it. Don't think about it. (laughs) After the retreat. But every one of these links is a direct experience that you've had innumerable times. And if you look to your own experience, you can validate to some degree the truth of this teaching. And that can support your practice and really enhance or arouse the confidence to really move forward or to really energetically and with strong intention and confidence to practice the simple practice of just noticing feelings. Just noting, noting, noting. Knowing that in time, this link from seven to eight between feeling and craving will break. Insight, knowledge. The knowledge of impermanence, the unsatisfactory nature of experience and the insubstantiality of experience. Insight, knowledge is a temporary suppression of craving, as I spoke about the other night. Insight into impermanence, putting aside craving. Insight into the unsatisfactory nature of experience, putting aside craving and and conceit and confusion. Insight knowledge is a temporary suppression of craving and a temporary experience of the cessation of dukkha. There is a permanent cessation of dukkha. 
when one is able to open to the unconditioned and uproot the tendency of craving based on ignorance. And when the tendency of ignorance and clinging or craving is uprooted, it never again enters the mind. And one is then freed from creating further dukkha. Not temporarily, but permanently. This is an understanding of the practice we do here. So maybe we should note feelings for a couple of minutes and see if we can let go of craving and clinging. Mm -hmm. 